This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And I'm joined, as always, with Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm well. How are you doing? I'm good. Who do we have on the pod today? Uh, well, today we've got Julian Cohen, and Julian is the manager of application development at 3DO. And he got his start in 3D printing at Stratasys. And after time at Stratasys, worked for Eaton, where he did application development. And now at 3DO, he, uh, he's a manager of application development at uh, 3DO. And 3DO is a company that has its own binder jetting technology and hopes to, as a service, industrialize 3D printing for high volume applications. So really cost competitive with MIM and other metal uh, manufacturing technologies and really taking this to, you know, to, to manufacturing, not just some dream technology, but something you would use uh, in your, uh, your, your end use application. So welcome to the 3D pod, Julian. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And so, so first off, Julian, tell us a little bit about, well, tell us a little bit, well, you're an application engineer and application engineering is a very hot topic in 3D printing at the moment. So tell us a little bit, what is application engineering exactly? Yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've, as you said, I worked at Stratasys Direct Manufacturing uh, earlier in my career, and I was also an application engineer there. Um, but it's one of those titles that's very broad. It can kind of mean a different thing at different companies. So at 3DO, um, what it is is basically, uh, it, it resides in a couple buckets. The, the first is basically customer-facing engineering. So my group is interfacing with all of the uh, engineers, the quality teams, everything uh, at our customer teams who we work with. Uh, and we're also then bringing that information and knowledge to our internal engineering teams and kind of uh, giving them the customer perspective on what is critical, what is important on the parts we make, uh, and basically ensuring interfacing between all of those teams and making sure things run smoothly. Um, we also work in the sales process a little bit. Um, but as I tell all the people I hire, we are not salespeople. <laughs> we are engineers. <laughs> yeah. And is it different um, at OEM? Is it like Stratasys? It would be different. Or? Yeah, I mean, and we can we can get into this a little bit. Um, but you know, one, one thing that's so different about 3DO is that we don't sell our machines externally to anyone. Uh, we basically have developed this proprietary technology that we use internally, essentially as a uh, contract manufacturer or service provider to build parts for people. So an application engineer here, you know, our, our role is not to go to a customer site and help install anything. Um, we're really uh, ensuring, you know, success of manufacturing programs for all of our various customers here. And at OEM, what is it, what is it like there? I Well, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, I just added Stratasys. OEM for me is like the machine manufacturer. Well, what's a different role there? Are you working more at the site or, or you're, you're... Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess that's having worked with those application engineers before. Um, I think the answer is yes. What, what I was doing at Stratasys was working at uh, Stratasys Direct Manufacturing. So basically their... Uh, contract manufacturing arm mm -hmm. and actually doing kind of a similar role to what I did here with just less strategic importance. I would say it was kind of just um, running programs. Yeah, because I think application engineers are in huge demand at, at additive right now because we just, well, they're not enough of them. Yes. And, and they also seem to be kind of people that, well, everybody's kind of using them as kind of like a magic sauce. Like I, I want to get into 3D printing, 
I don't know how to do the technical side. <laughs> I'm going to get an application <laughs> engineer. He's going to make it possible. She's going to make it possible. Is that is that? Do you think that's a role for application engineering? Do that kind of thing or? Yeah, well, I guess on the first point, I am hiring right now, and and I cannot agree more. It is extremely difficult to find good people for this role, but but I think I think that goes to why people think this role is is such a, a solve all, or or why it's so critical. Is that um, you know there are tons of great engineers in the world, um, and you know we have tons in our company, and plenty do, but um, you do need that mix of you know, good engineer, technical capability, you know, understanding of the process, but also the ability to be customer facing and to interface with, you know, the people that are going to bring their designs and their models to print and understand, you know, what is important to them, um, be able to, you know, have those discussions and, and you know, come to an agreement on, on, you know, geometry and requirements that meets everyone's needs. And, you know, there are salespeople that don't have the technical acumen for that and engineers that don't have the kind of customer facing ability. So, to have that mix is, is super critical. So I, I do agree with that. Um, and, but you know, hard to find good people for that. Yeah. Cause it's, it's a difference between solving a problem and solving this other guy's problem, which maybe you're also solving for the other guy sometimes maybe, right? Yeah. There, there, there's a human element that's, that's really critical in this role. I mean, then what is 3D? So you told us a little bit about what 3DO does. Okay. So what is your, you essentially have a binder jet technology, right? But it works a little bit differently than, than most binder jet technologies do right? yeah well i will yeah so two things in the in the intro i will i will mildly correct here the, the first is that it's not uh it's not binder jetting uh -huh. um it is a binder and center based technology okay, okay, but we okay. don't do any jetting here yeah. um and and the second thing that i'll talk a little more about later i'm sure is that you know we the the kind of the goal of 3do to to you know do manufacturing now for this not to be a gimmick um is not a future state we're going to ship more than a million parts this year nice nice um, are those, but is this largely metal that the parts that you're shipping this year, or is it? Plastic? Yeah. So the you know the the kind of the elevator pitch version effectively yeah. is um, <laughs> process wise um, the way the process works. It is a powder bed technology similar to you know laser powder bed or binder jetting or anything else. Um, we are using off the shelf MIM powder, so you know significantly cheaper than the laser powder bed um, feedstock. Um, first step is spreading a very thin, homogeneous you know homogeneously dense layer of powder. Um, that's the same across all the processes. Where ours differs entirely is the second step is we then spray a proprietary binder on the whole uh, layer of powder that we just spread. And we actually bind that entire layer to the uh -huh. previous layers. And the third step is we come in with what is effectively a, a bank of CNC micro end mills. And we're actually cutting out the 2D shape of every part in that layer, as well as any internal geometry uh, in the layer. And so those three steps repeat iteratively for each layer. Um, once we build up the entire, you know, what we call the part cake, uh, what you effectively have is bound parts, you know, in, in a green state, similar to, to MIM or to binary jetting, but inside of a bound powder cake. Uh, so we then remove that whole thing. We, we break the parts out, clean those parts and center them. Um, that centering step is very similar to binary jetting and MIM. Um, you know, the similar concerns in terms of dealing with uh, warpage distortion, you know, thermal mass across the part. Uh, and then after that process, the parts that come out are, you know, dense metal parts can be machined, coated, surface finished, mm -hmm. like anything else. And what is um, the machining step in the, the in the, well, we call in it the, the printer the, head, essentially? Yeah. It's it's an inline step in the process. Um, we, we have a bank of extremely small, you know, roughly 20,000, 20, 20,000 of an inch, um, 
end mills spinning very quickly. Uh, you can imagine they, they see very little cutting force because they're basically cutting through, you know, a strong chalk, you know, this material right. in the green state. Um, so, you know, instead of instead of binder jetting where you're, you're you know, throwing droplets down and, and in a specific shape, um, we're, we're actually we're just binding everything mm -hmm. and then cutting out the parts that we need. Um, we feel this gives us better accuracy over the part in the green state as well as the surface finish of these parts. Frankly, I, I wish I could, I should have sent you some of these parts as sample kits beforehand, because even when I uh, joined the company, it was, it was hard to believe until I got these things in my hand and saw, you know, we're, we're getting to like a, basically a, a bead blasted machine finish in the as printed state, you know, no post-processing or anything needed. So that's like an RA of, of like what? Like two? Uh, it was, uh, so we, <laughs> uh, oh yeah, sorry. I'm, I think in uh, micro inches over here, but uh, after an automated tumble blast, which is a kind of like a quick, uh, standard process for us we're in like the 1.6 range 60 to 70 micro inches ra wow okay that's that's uh and that's just straight out of the machine so does it also mean that the post-processing is typically less or use less material or, or yeah i mean we that that's kind of the goal is is always to drive to you know no or less post-processing um, we, we do a lot of coating so you know black nitride and uh, electrolysis nickel and black oxide and stuff but mm -hmm. in terms of the uh surface roughness Generally, we really don't have to improve that. Although in some cases we we are and we do have that capability in house. I was going to ask about shrinkage exactly. Yeah, like you, you you take it out and then you center the part. Like what's what kind of shrinkage are you seeing? Yeah, so so we see on the order of twenty percent shrinkage, which is kind of similar across the different binder and center technologies. Um, there, there's a couple things that we get out of our process that we feel. Uh, help us in that process, in you know, in the sintering process, differently than you know, MIM or binder jetting. Um, and I, I guess I'll, I'll back up slightly and say that um, the two technical co-founders of the company got their PhDs in binder jetting um, mm -hmm. and decided to move forward with this process. Um, you know, looking at the the physics fundamentals of binder jetting. I mean, there's there's a lot to talk about there, but at the end of the day, you're, you're shooting you know, relatively large droplets of liquid because there's a kind of a, a physical limit to how small you can get a droplet onto what are very small particles of powder. And that process is very dynamic when it's hitting the bed, right? You're getting particle agglomeration, you're getting particles like, ejected out of the bed. So in t you, what you end up with is a, is a kind of a fuzzier uh, uh, boundary between the bound powder and kind of the loose powder. Um, you know, this is HP is trying to solve this with kind of like different resists or ways to kind of make that boundary um, crisper. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that that is one of the reasons why they decided to go down this road of what is effectively a hybrid process. Mm -hmm. um, and it allows us to leverage, you know, an extremely mature and well understood technology in, you know, CNC machining, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so so that's true. You know, we have, we have a very low percentage of binder to powder ratio. Mm -hmm. So the shrinkage that does occur um, and, and the kind of the warpage that you get in the centering process um, is, is a little bit less. Um, and, and we understand it fairly well. The, the, the one other thing to say about that in terms of uh, controlling the shrinkage is that uh, if you can imagine this, you know, we're, we're cutting out the part, um, depending on how we orient it, the, whatever's on the bottom of that part is, is basically a conformal shape to the part mm -hmm. and, and is also a bound powder. Mm -hmm. So we can effectively print uh, what are in the MIM industry called setters in line with the part in the print process. Mm -hmm. So it's basically, you know, a perfect negative of the part made out of the same bound material that's going to shrink at the same rate. So yeah. instead of, you know, in, in MIM, you get, usually have to use ceramic setters, which you get like frictional drag across that and all kinds of weird uh, forces going on. But uh, we can basically 
choose to orient the part in such a way that we can like print the setter, print the part, and then just put them together uh, with an interface layer in the uh, centering process. And that just breaks away manually, the, the, the outer layer, right? Yeah, there, there's some IP around how we uh, make that work in the centering process, but, but effectively. Magic. Magic. <laughs> yes, it's magic. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so if we're looking at this kind of technology, I understand, that, okay, it's, it's, it's very tempting to develop your own IP stock. I think it, it would be, it's very nice that you use just the, the, the regular bog standard MIM powders from a cost perspective, of course. Mm-hmm. But are there intrinsic advantages, and the surface finish is nice, are there other intrinsic advantages to your process? Or Yeah, I mean, so there, there are. Um, the Maybe the one other thing to say, I'll, I'll answer your question directly, but um, so 3DO, we, you know, like I said, we don't sell machines. We really only use them internally. And mm-hmm. one thing that allows us to do is to control the entire vertical process, meaning um, you know, we develop the software, the slicing, you know, the software decode generation for the machines, uh, and all of the post processes off of that. Uh, and you know, I'm sure you've had people on on the pod. Uh, you guys probably have experience, but like bringing you know very large, expensive, complicated capital, you know, machinery into a business, and then trying to develop the uh, skills and the processes and systems around that is is difficult and expensive, and it's generally a long time horizon to do that well. So, you know, we're, we're really able to optimize all of the auxiliary processes kind of upstream and downstream of the actual printing so that, you know, we, there, there's no worry about how, how do you train someone to use this process? It's like, no, we, we are the best in the world at using this process. To directly answer your question, there, there are a lot of things that are on the horizon for us that are, we essentially have to build the software infrastructure to make happen. So um, when I described cutting out the parts in every layer, basically the CNC step in the process. The one thing that we can do that we're, you know, we're actively developing and just aren't doing in production is 3D cutting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, effectively every 3D printing process in the world makes layer lines, right? You know, if you, if you get a really high resolution SLA style process, those are going to be very small and you may not even see them, but they're there. And especially when you're talking aerospace or medical or fatigue limited parts, those create stress concentrations that can be an issue in the uh, fatigue life of that part. So what we have the capability to do is basically cut the multiple layers in 3D, you know, just have like a essentially a three axis cutting step instead of just cutting 2D in that layer and fully remove layer lines from our parts. So there, there's, there's a future, you know, in the next year or two years where we're, you know, we're producing fully layer line list parts. Um, and, and we see a huge benefit for that to, to the industries I talked about earlier. So uh, medical is what you've seen the biggest increase over the last couple of years. What industries are you hoping to start to attract uh, in, the, in the near future? Yeah, I mean, uh, that actually, that goes to kind of the, the question you asked earlier. So, you know, do we do metal or what are our materials? So, so right now we, we are only printing in 17.4 pH stainless steel. Hmm. Um, you know, that, that was chosen for a number of reasons. It has kind of wide applicability. Um, it's, it's one of the most used MIM uh, it, it is, excuse me, the, it is the most used MIM material in the world. So um, there are a lot of inroads there, but uh, we have active development going on on a number of different materials. So, um, you know, something like a 6,000, 7,000 series aluminum is on the horizon. Um, some type of tool steel, whether that's Ooh. like an S7 or a 4140 or, or something along those lines, um, that's going to be driven by customer demand. And we see you know, on the on the aluminum side, you know that obviously opens up a, a massive world of lightweight applications in um, in aerospace and aviation, um, all different industries there. Um, tool steel opens up a lot in the 
you know, industrial in, in oil and gas and kind of uh, mechanical components that, that see a lot of uh, wear or impact and need mm -hmm. that toughness. I'm, um, I'm, I'm always curious on tooled stuff because I still do tooling. Um, with the tool steel, like, is it, what's the advantage to using your process, uh, theoretically? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, you know, one thing is that tool steel is really hard to machine, um, which for the same reason that people, are yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, if we can, if we can print, you know, either print, you know, just finished parts or print a near net and take like a, like a finishing machine pass, um, right you know, that, that's a, that's a huge benefit. And it's, you know, it's similar to what you've seen with like titanium in the, like the larger wire arc processes where it's like starting with a block of titanium and, and machining it versus printing this kind of gross looking, but near net part and then just machining it, you know, saving time and money there is a, is a big deal. Um, and the, and the other side of, you know, obviously the, the geometry side of things, you know, this right. is the 3d pod. So I don't have to tell you guys, but the, the freedom you get and the ability to do like internal channels in, for example, I've seen a couple different applications in, uh, like like drilling, like industrial drilling, where you, you want to flow coolant to where it needs to be. And, you know, to drill those paths is either really hard or it doesn't really work. You can't do it. Yeah. I'm really excited about, like, for example, so we have regular binder jet, let's say. And then we have this, uh, that's called a slurry SLA kind of processes, you know, mm. like a hollow AM and Incas and Litos right. and, all these, and Admatech. And they have a, a process that also results in a metal part. But the idea is, of course, because of the slurry, they may be able to get really good definition on internal channels and stuff. Are there also advantages to your process on, uh, over just regular binder jet or other uh, processes with these internal channels? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know that we have any advantages in terms of geometry. Like the the, the freedom is really there on, on all the processes. Um, you know, I think, you know, right now as a company, we're competing primarily with like CNC and MIM. Um, because, you know, binder jetting is really just continuing to spin up in, in terms of real um, applications and real, you know, production. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I tend to think that over the next year, two, three years, like binder jetting will become our main competition in terms of like price and, and you know, process stability and, and actual kind of widespread availability of it for people that want to build their parts. And, you know, and the, like I said earlier, the one thing that's true is that, you know, companies that are bringing in these expensive production binder jetting machines are going to have a, a more difficult time than they imagine getting that to a stable place. Uh, speaking from a place of experience with laser powder bed. Um, and so, and so one thing we do have is, is just a really solid um, head start here. And like I said, we're, we're delivering, you know, hundreds of thousands of parts a month. It'll be over a million this year and we're growing quickly. So we, where one of the real advantages we have is that, you know, we're doing real end use production parts today. And, you know, we've built the, the quality systems, the, you know, the sales base certainly to get that in the door, but all of the kind of production um, processes and, and like controls around that process to, to make this happen in a real way. And so um, that, that's something that's going to take Bioenergetic and the company's using it a while to spin up and, and we hope to maintain that lead through that time period. And is the idea that because of the way you're structured, you will keep being ahead of the curve? Is that kind of the idea? Or do you hope to transition to where you could sell your machines at one point? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a great question. It's, it's, certainly, it's certainly the hope to, right now for the near future, you know, we're, we're hyper-focused on, on production internally. Um, you know, we're, we're certainly open to all, all kinds of interesting business propositions. But, um, you know, right now we're, we're definitely focused on keeping it internal and, and continuing to tune the process. Um, one thing that, it, that is true is that, you know, for the past two years, I've been with the company for about two years. For that time period, we've, we've had 
um, you know, one machine platform, which has been our work, our workhorse. Um, we're, we right now have the first, I think five or six of a, a new, I mean, it's really, it's not even a next generation. It's like a, it's like an evolution really in what the machine, uh, like our next generation machine effectively. So same process, but larger build volume, more spindles, higher throughput, um, you know, more stability in the process. So by the end of the year, we'll be running primarily on, uh, you know, a new fleet of production machines. So, um, you know, one, one thing that's going to be interesting, interesting to see is, you know, where, where are we on, on the, you know, maturity S curve, if you will, versus where is Bynergetting and where are these kind of other processes like, like slurry based metal processes Mm -hmm. in terms of like, you know, you look at desktop metal or, or GE or HP or X1 for that matter, um, you know, putting out their production machines and, you know, single pass jetting or, or similar processes is very fast, you know, and it's, Mm -hmm. it's good at what it does, you know, but how much, how much more room is there for it to get faster or better? Or, you know, where do you run up against the, the really the limitations of the, the um, technology and physics of jetting a, a binder droplet onto a powder bed? So that, that's going to be really interesting to, to watch. I think also you're going to make a very different machine. I mean, I think I've noticed that, like, if you see Adup, Adup just came out with mm-hmm. this new SLM machine, and that is completely focused by production. That's because Fives and Michelin, the owners of the company, they also mm-hmm. use these on the production floor to make millions of parts. And you see the kind of production, like the kind of things they're doing is like they're making it easier to, to, to switch around the machine. They're shortening the times to, uh, to turn around production runs. They're really doing production-focused stuff. Whereas, you know, the other uh, SLM or the other uh, powder bed fusion vendors are focusing a lot more on, you know, claims and features and things that are really are to sell the machine or developing it for customers, you know, like yield. But then, yeah, you're thinking like at, at fives or or add up, like they're focusing a lot of time on, the, on reducing the downtime in between builds. And that is a huge amount of time uh, for, for, for powder bed fusion, you know? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, that's the, you know, I, I lived in the powder bed fusion world for five years or so after I got out of grad school. And, and that's, I, I honestly add up is, is low key. One of the, one of the best machine, you know, yeah. OEMs in that space. And, and people kind of overlook it because their big focus is like, we want to make amazing machines, but mainly f- to make better things for our own process. And they're very focused, as you said, on production. So I was, uh, I was, I, I've never used one personally in, in, you know, in production, but I was really impressed with like their technology and the capabilities. And this is like, you know, two plus years ago at this point. So, um, I assume it's even better now. I love what they're doing. I think I think they I think they deserve more attention. I think because also they make the machines the way of insulating the the entire like core of the machine to make it like you can take it out of the machine the 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 build chamber. Mm-hmm. It makes it much safer, and it's it's a super logical thing to do. But you wouldn't do that like you know you can't do that with anyone else's machine. I love stuff like this. I love the their offering. I think they're yeah. There a lot of people overlook them. I think, uh, but I don't think they. They should be overlooked, I think. Yeah, and and it's interesting, as you said, to see the difference between, for example, AdUp and like Velo 3D, where AdUp's like, mm-hmm. you know, we're making this for production. This is, you know, we're going to reduce downtime, cycle time, etc. Velo's like, no, 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 we we have this black magic of you know non-contact recoding, and this is going to be expensive and slower, but we're just going to be able to make the most insane, you know, high aspect ratio, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, weird geometry parts for very specific like high cost applications. And like mm-hmm. both of those are needed, but you know you, you almost see like a branching in what what the machines mm-hmm. are focused on. 
Yeah, yeah, but I love that. I mean, I think if you look at the, there's like three different ways of doing, or four different ways of like marketing yourself in middle. One is like claim amazing stuff and people will come. Right? One is Velo. Which, <laughs> we'll not go. Well, let's not go into that one. Um, so the other one, Velo, is like really tightly focused on very few applications. Mm-hmm. Right? They're doing oil and gas. They're doing impellers. They're doing uh, various space, and they're doing very very limited to that. Right. Ever and then I think there's the the, the the Michelin way, which is just like making a production machine. And then of course there's the the what everybody else is doing, the twelve laser like amazing stuff, right? Yeah. And uh, suited for everything that everyone has done since the beginning. We'll make you a machine that can make an orthopedic implant and also a car part, right? I mean, okay. You know, I think between those things, I I'm really intrigued by the Velo way of doing things. And I'm really intrigued by the the just the way of doing things by by making a production system that's actually going to make the guy on the floor happy. You know, the guy standing on the concrete floor, the girl standing on the concrete floor, she's going to be happy by this thing because it's actually going to be made for her, not for just some spreadsheet. Yeah. You know? Yes. Yes, definitely. Because you know, I've, and you know, we'll, we'll not name any any OEM names, but I certainly have worked with machines that are like technically fantastic, but like just a horror to use in person. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the opposite is also true of some, and that's. That's that's like that's almost like like many industries I think um, mm-hmm. there there is a need for a layer of um, designers focused on UI UX on top of the mm-hmm. you know engineering technical layer and some companies mm-hmm. take that more or less seriously you know yeah uh, and there's certain machines that for example there's like between EBM builds and some older machines there's an eight hour uh, turnaround time right, right. <laughs> so so that uh, to me that that has wrecked so many business cases right it's like it's not only it could be eight hours it could be less but but that just wrecks so many business cases if you're if you're there's people that come to like they say we're going to do 300 days of production a year and stuff and I'm like ah <laughs> but, <laughs> how many you, shifts do you have do, how many you shifts have to, do you have do you yeah. have to take the machine down and like clean it in between uses or something to yeah, well, just the, the, to remove the build, to clean it, and then to put the, the to warm up the new build and put it uh, back in would be like up to eight hours. Well, so everything, yeah. right? Right. Yeah, and electric beam. Well, and it's like it's it's also like a heated, like a very heated process. You need to bring it up to fairly high temps. So there's a lot of like ramp up, ramp down of that. Um, yeah, yeah, but and and that's that's another interesting thing, which is similar to what I was saying about um, you know the maturity of other processes, like. You know, is there is there some inflection point that we aren't anticipating in in laser powder bed where like like oh my god wow now we can use MIM powder for this process you know you don't have to spend forty dollars a kilogram or something um, or more or you know or or is it really just we're gonna keep adding lasers we're gonna mm-hmm. keep reducing downtime but you're you're kind of getting to that uh, more mm-hmm. horizontal point of the curve so that's that's kind of I'm not sure about that actually. No, I I completely agree. I mean, I think I think there's only a couple of ways to move forward. I mean, we could we could, for example, do, uh, you know, you can go to early goal or you can go to SMS Group or some of these guys or what are these guys, EA or one of those dudes, and you can get your own uh, uh, gas atomization facility. That would be mm-hmm. good, right? If you're really serious, <laughs> if you're very serious, get your own, or you can get a Molly Works thing, which would be fun, right? That would really reduce your costs, and then and then. Or you could serialize these, let's say M290s. Okay, I right. understand that to a certain extent. But to me, this whole like, I know how often these things break down, and and, <laughs> and the idea of having like this, you know, these really really big machines to break down after building for a week or something, I just don't understand that. That from a productivity viewpoint just scares me. You know, you can't you know, imagine losing a week's worth of production on like a, a three million dollar machine. It's like it's going to be ha- wreak havoc on all your planning and stuff. Right. And, and, and not even to mention in terms of, you know, risk, if we're talking about that, right. I mean, laser powder bed, you're talking about four to 10 to 20 day builds, 
right? I mean, I'm sure that's, yeah. you know, depends on the yeah. part, depends on how many you're building, but you know, I, I, you know, I, br I brought an M400 on pretty early in my career and we had, we had like a 24 day build for this development part. And it's like, you know, what, what happens if it, if you have an issue on day 19, yeah. like that's it's yeah, almost yeah. a month's worth of, <laughs> of your time yeah. tied up in that. Yeah. 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 And I also worry about just the idea of just throwing lasers at this problem and having them, you know, you're all familiar with the traveling salesman problem and stuff like this, <laughs> you know, first off, like they're going to have to wait for each other. And secondly, there's going to be a lot of residual heat from one laser pass on the other one. Yeah, I think I think that's actually an interesting, more more broad point, which is that you know, for, for most, well, I guess for maybe not every, but every metal process, you know, you need to introduce like a high level of energy somewhere in the process to mm -hmm. make this metal part. And it's the I, I think there's a very clear break between you know laser, e beam, you know, I mean even even wire arc, although I'm, it's kind of a different category of like putting energy in at the printing process. Versus, you know, the binder and center based technologies like like binder jetting, like 3DO, where, you know, you're, you're building the part, but it's a very low energy process and introducing that energy at a later point that is more controlled, less prone to breaking debt, like deal, not dealing with lasers and controlling those and developing process specifications around lasers has been an absolute joy. I can tell you <laughs> yeah. after doing it for a while. But doesn't uh, that also mean that because that's that's more straightforward that you'll have much much more competition from from in the binder jet space? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a fair point. It kind of goes to the you know democratization of printing, where you know that's one one of the things like I I always stress to our customers is you know this and what I've said in in um, you know talked before is that like three D printing is is cool you know and and it's like shiny and and obviously that was a whole thing 10 years ago with with stocks and everything but you know cool and shiny is not a reason to go manufacture your your production products with any process right. Right. so like the the gimmicks are only are only good if they if they result in functional or or cost based improvements to this customer so you know one thing is that is that you know like for for us at 3DO another thing about the the kind of vertical uh, you know, integration we have over the whole process is that if you if you're buying a 3D printing machine, you need to wring every possible ounce of productivity you can out of that machine, and that means you know your yields need to be high. You need to have very low defect rates. Like all of that is true, and, you, and as a result, you spend a lot of time generally doing uh, quality checks and, and you know non-destructive testing. For 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 us at 3DO, we we see the whole production line, including you know like standard you know cnc machine post processing as our kind of domain of production so if it makes sense for us to print the parts in such a way that you know they're they're not uh fully finished you know they have some you know uh added stock or added features that we're going to machine off later um but then kind of printing them in that way and then machining later results in an overall better throughput then fine like we, we don't care it's, it's not about whether this is made fully via the 3d printing process or we you know we machine some holes or slots later it's like, how, how do we get to, you know, a, a cost competitive, you know, um, funct functionally competitive part for our customers? And it's like, it doesn't really matter how you get there for us. Yeah, well, what kind of size parts? If you look at these customers, you focus on manufacturing. So you're doing like production runs from like 100 to a couple thousand or something like that usually? Or what, what's, the, what's um, the focus? No, yeah, this this is what's so so cool about where we are at 3DO, which is, you know, we're, we're, we're hyper-focused on, on volume production. We do... We, we do no real prototyping at all or, or low run stuff. And we, we, you know, we will, we'll do low run stuff for customers um, as part of a larger program to get into production. But, you know, right. on the very low end, we're in the thousands. Most of what we're doing is in the tens of thousands and some is in the kind of, um, you know, 
fifty to a hundred thousand per year range of of components. And and I know it's always hard to compare these two, but how how does it compare to like if you were to get that centered under a normal thing? Like, is it a similar cost, less cost, more cost? When you when, when you say centered, do you mean like in in Binarjet or in MIM or kind of just all those processes? Oh, I mean in like a traditional like uh, you know like I I have nozzles for example that i would they pour metal in and they center them in the factory kind of thing yeah so, I mean, so yeah sorry, I mean, so, mim, mim, yeah 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 and and what well, it's funny I, I didn't know enough about mim honestly before starting this job it's something that i feel is certainly in my like undergrad and grad crew was just not taught about i knew a lot about cnc um, right but uh so ver, i'll do the quick one first versus cnc generally we're we're cheaper just straight okay. up um yeah. and and i'll Obviously, you get all the flexibility and everything of of 3D printing. Um, that the the one thing CNC has is that it's you know large parts aren't necessarily more expensive. Um, this depends on how much material you're removing. So we you know as parts get bigger, like the heuristic we like to use is kind of you know very small parts uh, are are good. Golf ball size is really kind of uh, our our wheelhouse. You know mm. roughly one inch cube, maybe maybe one dimension that's up to two or three inches. You know, so like up to kind of softball sized, that that heuristic is is where we are most cost competitive. It's not really a technical limitation for us. Like we can build big parts; they just get expensive. Um, versus MIM, the question is is, is a couple fold. One is um, how many parts are you trying to make with MIM? Like if you're a, if you're an auto manufacturer, if you're a I don't know high volume medical manufacturer, and you're making a million parts a year, it's going to be really hard for us to compete straight up on price. Right. Although I will say that the 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 goal of 3DO is is to be is to be just straight up cost competitive on a piece price basis. Forget about the the cost of tooling and all of that. So you know, talk to me in, in a couple of years and maybe the, <laughs> and and we should be there. But the but the things that we do have going for us is especially right now, you know, looking at what's happening with the global supply chain, um, even in the U.S. You know, for to get a MIM tool cut and and when when we say a MIM tool, this is a generally complicated expensive you know precision machined block of metal and depending on the part you're making it may have multiple moving slides to get certain you know undercuts and, and features so mm -hmm. those those tools you know on the very low end you're talking ten thousand dollars probably up to you know 80 to 100 if it's really complicated per part so and so but looking at you know lead times right now uh, it, it, even if you go overseas in the u.s you're looking at you know months to get a tool you know, some time then to get the first parts off the tool, see what those look like, test them maybe. You know, if something goes wrong, God help you. You, know, you got to go <laughs> try and fix that yeah. tool or cut another one. Um, and then and then you're talking also multiple months to get the production parts, you know, scheduled in the production queue and actually get your production run off of that part. So, you know, we talk to customers all the time where they're saying we're hearing, you know, six, eight months to get our production parts out of that process um, mm -hmm. with an upfront tooling cost that we have to pay out of pocket. So if you're trying to launch, if you're trying to launch, you know, a, a, an assembly, you know, a mechanical part that has four or five small mechanical components, you know, are you ready to drop a quarter million dollars and wait six months to get the first parts? Um, mm -hmm. You know, so so 3DO is is to directly answer your question, we we can be very cost competitive at quote unquote lower MIM volumes. So in the, you know, if, if you're trying to make ten thousand parts, it's going to be really hard to get good amortization over that tool. Right. Um, I would say in in the thousand to hundred thousand parts a year, where we can you're... be very competitive. It, it yeah. really depends on at that point at the part, the geometry, etc. Mm -hmm. um, but what we can do is give you a flexibility in production. So if you need to make a small change, you know, 
after the first articles or six months down the line, you know, we do that immediately. Uh, and lead time in terms of getting product to market. You know, what we say all the time to, to people trying to launch products is like, what, what is three months worth of, you know, production revenue worth to you? You know, if you're selling a couple thousand units a month or, or whatever it is, like, you know, how, how much money are you leaving on the table trying to bring out a couple cents out of your piece price? Yeah. And we said something very interesting that, that, okay, so usually large parts, like with BinderJet, like there's some processes that make really small parts really well, and pretty much nobody makes really large parts really well because they kind of, right, like, right. They'll, warp, <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll warp and they'll bend and stuff. So you guys have a, it's a little bit easier with you guys or how does it work? So I guess the the, the one thing about part size in our process is that it's, it, the, it's the cost curve is nonlinear. When, when you start getting into large parts, because you just basically start taking up the whole print bed, you know, like amortizing one print over, you know, a hundred parts versus 10 parts. It's, it's, you know, more or less a 10 X um, difference, but, but the part doesn't have to be 10 times bigger to make that difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so for us, it's, it's, it's mostly a costing, you know, we, 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 we haven't built anything that's, you know, the size of like a, a rocket engine. Um, we, we have built, you know, larger meaning, you know, on the order of, four, five, six, eight inches, like, like gears and rings and stuff that, mm-hmm. you know, we, we get good material properties out of, um, you know, we, we've only printed parts at that size that have like relatively similar, um, like thermal masses. Like we're, we're not doing anything with very thin to large sections. I, I think dealing with sintering warpage at that scale, like it is in MIM, like it is in BinoJetting would be, you know, it'd be a large challenge. Um, yeah. and that, that for us is driven by, by customer demand where, you know, we, we know we're competitive. We, we primarily make like these smaller parts, but, you know, we, we do have one, one customer we're talking to right now with a strategic partnership where, you know, we're going to be making this, this really complex application, which I can't talk too much about, but, you know, this, we're talking like um, maybe a, a couple of iPhones stacked on top of each other size mm-hmm. um, with some internal geometry. So it's, it's, it's possible. Um, it just, it really takes the, I mean, when, when you're in production like this, and this was similar at uh, Stratasys Direct um, as a contract manufacturer, like you, there's a lot of capability that, you know, we, we don't have the room to, to hire like a, a massive suite of R&D engineers and devote machines to them. It, it, a lot of this has to be driven by customer demand. So part of, what, part of what I'm trying to do and my team is trying to focus on, among other things, is like finding those customers who can help us push the technology forward, you know, and, and partner to do so. Cool. Cool. And where do you hope to be in like the other five years or so? Where, where do you hope to, to, to end up? What do you hope to achieve? It's a, it's a great question, but it's, I, I almost like laugh because I mean, I, like I said, I joined the company about two years ago and the, the difference between then and now is so stark. I mean, we, you know, we last fall, we moved to a, from a, a 10,000 square foot to a 40,000 square foot production facility. Um, we're, we're in the Los Angeles area. Um, and, you know, went from, sh- when I joined, we were shipping probably, 20 to 30,000 parts a month at, at a lot lower yields. Like I said, we're shipping over a hundred thousand a month and, and that's quickly growing. So it's, it's really hard for me to picture five years. I can tell you in, you know, the, the one to three year timescale, we intend to be significantly cheaper on a piece price basis with a number of additional materials and a, a wider availability of, of size range for, for customers where we can say, you know, yes, we actually know what this looks like to build, you know, a, something in a, in a five inch cube, you know, it's going to be expensive, but you know, maybe this works for your, you know, whatever specialty application this, this makes sense for. Okay. All right, man. Julian, sounds like a lot of fun. Sounds like a good path forward. Uh, thank you so much for being on the 3d pod. 
thank you so much, guys. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and Max, thank you for being there today. Always. It was just very interesting. And uh, thank you for listening. And this is another episode of the 3D Pod, and my name is Joris Peels. Have a nice day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.